Hi, this is Robert Furrow, and welcome to TruthQuest Podcast. This is our Q&A where we look at questions through the lens of Scripture. Our desire is to know what God's Word says so that you and I can know what to believe. Oftentimes, people will approach the Bible with a confirmation bias. That is, they believe something, they've been taught something, so they want to go to see if they can find evidence for that. We want to find out what the Bible says, like the Bereans who were more fair-minded than the Thessalonians. They searched, they received the Word of God with all joy, but then they sought out these things to find out whether or not they are true. It's good to see you guys uh, coming on here. I've been uh, in Israel for the last couple of weeks, so this is the first Q&A that we've done for a little while. And I want to start off with a question that I got after a church service a while back. When I close out a church service, I like to use the blessing from Numbers. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you, and the Lord be gracious upon and the Lord lift up his countenance on you and be gracious unto you. And it uses the tetragrammaton three times in that blessing. Every time it says, now the Lord bless you and keep you. Now the Lord, every time it says Lord, that's the tetragrammaton, the four letters that make up the name of God. Also, that passage, that, that blessing is the oldest piece of scripture that we have. It was the silver scrolls that were found in Jerusalem, I believe in 1991, in a tomb and was dated back to the first temple period, to around 2,700 years ago. The first temple period, that would be the temple of Solomon, and it's got the name of God in it three times. A lot of times people will say that the name of God was something that was added later on, but we actually have a cursed tablet from Mount Eber that dates back to the days of Joshua that has the YHWH in it. And so I explained before I gave the blessing that this is uh, the Tetragrammaton is in here three times, the divine name of God. And when I did that, Uh, Someone approached me after the service and said, what is the Tetragrammaton? Well, the Tetragrammaton comes from the Tetra, meaning four, Gram, meaning letters. So the Tetragrammaton is the four letters. It's like the four letters, the four letters that are greater than any other four letters on the face of the earth. That's what the Tetragrammaton means to me. So when someone says, well, the Tetragrammaton is used over a thousand times in the scriptures, and it is, and I want to show you that here in a moment, then you understand what is being said. Uh, Here, I want to pull up uh, this passage out of the book of, let's see what book, out of the book of Exodus. Let me make sure I get to it. Uh, This is Exodus chapter 3. This is the burning bush passage, and it's where Moses says, Who shall I say sent me? And God gives him the divine name, the name of God. And so let me find the exact verse here. Here I am, uh, draw near, uh, and he says, um, uh, have sent me when they have brought forth these people of Egypt. And Moses, uh, uh, let's, I should have found this exactly and had it all queued up here uh, when I, before I started the, the Q&A here. Um, but let me, let me get to it. Just take me a couple of minutes to get uh, to the proper place here uh, where it says, I'm certainly, all right, here we go. All right, so let me go ahead and put this up on the screen for you. And, um, haven't used this in a little while. 
So let's see if it works. Good, it's working. All right, so this is the King James Bible, and it is my, my um, inner linear Bible. It's the one where I go to Greek and Hebrew on it. This way I'm going to be able to go to Greek passages, the Hebrew passages, to show you where the name of God is here in this. I'm going to start in verse 13. It says, And Moses said unto God, Behold, when I come to the children of Israel, and shall say to them, the God of your fathers has sent me unto you. And they say, what is his name? What shall I say to them? Then Moses said, I am that I am. Now look at what this word is here. The word I am that I am is Ha-Way, okay? Ha-Way. And Ha-Way is a prim primitive root and it means to exist, to become, to come to pass. So God says, my name is, is Yahweh. I am the ever-existent one. I'm the one that's always been around. I am. That's, it's most often translated, I am. Jesus said when he was arrested in the garden, I am, and they fell down on the ground. I believe making a statement that he is God in the flesh. So this is what he says that, that his name is. He says his name is Yahweh, and it means to exist, that he always will exist. The one who was, who is, and who is to come. That is who this is. But when we go back a little bit further now in the text, it says, that's tell them, I am that I am. And he said, thus you shall say to them, I am has sent, I am has sent me unto you. So now we come over to the I am here. And uh, I pressed the wrong one. Hold on. We come over to the I am. I'm not getting it. Um... Thus you shall say to them, let me get this here. The children of Israel, I am that I am has sent you. All right. So this was going to work out in my mind much better uh, than what it's working out now. So he goes on to say, tell them I am has sent you. And the God said unto Moses, thou shalt say unto the children of Israel, the Lord, the God of your fathers. Now here's where the word Lord, and notice it's all in caps there, right? It's got a large L and then O-R-D in caps. And when you press on Lord, then you get Yehovah. Now, Yehovah or Jehovah is the old Germanic way of saying Yahweh. And no one uses, I shouldn't say no one used that today. People still use that today, but we know that that's not the pronunciation of the name. In fact, they would add the vowels of Adonai or Adon, Lord, into uh, the Tetragrammaton to come up with Yehovah. Most Hebrew scholars today, and I've talked to some, believe that it was pronounced close to Yahweh that that is the way that it would have pronounced. But you can see here that there are the four letters. It's up at the top uh, uh, right-hand corner of the screen. You've got the tetragrammaton there. It looks to us like an L and then an I and then an L, uh, L, I, and, or excuse me, N, L, N, and then an apostrophe. Well, those are actually four words. You've got, and remember, they go left to right. And so you have uh, Yod, Hey, so that what looks like an N is pronounced hey, wahe, yad hey, wahe, or some say yad hey, vahe, and those are the four vowels, Y H W H. And we don't know what the consonants were. One reason we don't know is because there were no consonants in ancient Hebrew. They knew something would be what it would be said by the context. And something could be spelled the same way in and, and, and have different contexts and mean different things. And we have words like that today. 
that are spelled the same way, but we learn what they are from context. That was ancient Hebrew. They came up with a system of vowels. Now, on top of that, when they would write this name of God, the scribes, it was so holy that they would either write, put the vowels in there of Adonai, or they would write Adonai or Adon, meaning Lord, or they would, um, or they would, when they wanted to say the name of God, they would say Hashem, the name. They wouldn't say it. And so the actual name of God has been forgotten, even though there are a lot of Hebrew scholars that are confident that it's, it's Yahweh or something very close to Yahweh. We don't know exactly what the name of God is. And I don't think that that is such a bad thing. I think it's okay that we should have reverence for it as well. But understanding that the Tetragrammaton is God saying, I am the existent one, the one who has always existed. This means God is outside of time. Let me show you how often uh, this word is used in the, the, the scriptures. So if you go on here in my app, it goes on to give you the different ways in which uh, the word this, this tetragrammaton has been used. You can see there it's um, according to uh, all that the Lord or according as the Lord, according to all the Lord, after that the Lord. So these are all ways that they translated it. And you can see that um, against the Lord was 61 times and there's some other ways. And then there's 10 times all that the Lord probably did is 10 times. And then there's a three times also the Lord. And as you keep on going down here, you see a bunch of different little references putting in English words to help it make sense to us um, that are different than Hebrew, and we get to 400 occurrences and the Lord, and then 107 occurrences and the um, and the Lord with small caps there, and then three occurrences, and I mean, we can just continue to go on 82 times as the Lord, and you can see that over a thousand times the Tetragrammaton has been, uh, has been used uh, throughout the Old Testament, the actual name of God. So yes, our God has a name, and the name of our God, who is who is God Almighty, who is God Provider, who is the God who hears, who is the God who answers. Uh, our God is the ever-existent one. He is Yad-Heh-Wad-Heh, and how exactly you pronounce that, we don't know. But when we say the tetragrammaton, literally we, we, literally we mean the four letters, the four letters, the most important four letters in all of the universe, the tetragrammaton, uh, which is exactly what that means. And what is funny is how often I'll say, as I'm teaching through the scriptures, the tetragrammaton, as if everybody knows that it means the four letters. All right, so that's what it means, and it speaks of that name of God, uh, and it's awesome for us to be able to look at it and know it. And you can identify it in your Bible when the word Yahweh is used, uh, when the Y-H-W-H is used, because it's going to be LORD in all caps in most versions of the Bible. There are some that are an exception, and you would be able uh, to figure these out. All right. So if you're new here, uh, we're really glad to have you here. If you have a question, you can put a question mark or you can write a question before your comment and then write out your comment, reread it a couple of times, make sure that it makes sense and that it says what you want it to say, and then go ahead and submit it and we'll get to it 
as we uh, make our way uh, through uh, this next hour together in our Q&A. By the way, it's good to be back. I was in Israel uh, for almost uh, for almost two weeks, and um, it was good to be there. A lot happened while we were there. There were protests that were in the street. Uh, they're having some governmental issues uh, that are there. Also, there's a flare-up with the Palestinian and the um, the Israeli and the Palestinian-Israeli relations, and um, we were there for all of that, but it was a great trip. Everybody's back now, and it was awesome. So, um, uh, Calvert Tucson gives us a question from Jari, follow-up from last month on natural selection. Is it true that God concealed information, things like atoms and molecules, because they weren't ready to know that? The Bible was okay for back then, but not now. Now we don't need the Bible. We have science. Thanks. This is a question from a relative. All right. Thanks, Jari. Yeah, I understand people saying that. Um, Hey, we're a lot farther along now. We have science. The Bible was written for people back then. But the Bible is not a scientific book, and science doesn't deal with the things that the Bible deals with. The Bible deals with how we are to live, what man is like, how we should treat one another, right? The Ten Commandments. Don't have any other God before you. You can't find that in science. Um, Don't murder. You don't find that in science. Uh, Don't bear false witness. Don't slander people. You don't find that in science. So science cannot deal with the things that you find in Scripture. Neither can Scripture deal with the things that you find in science. Although I believe as science continues to evolve, yeah, I believe in evolution of science because it doesn't stay the same. You're always supposed to be doubting the facts that you know in science so that it can continue to evolve to the truth, to what the truth is. And since the word of God is the truth, science will come to, to, to show that the word of God is true and that there's not anything there that in in the way it's written that is contradictory to science when it ventures into the realm of science. It uses, you don't ever expect a, um, a rap song to be scientifically correct. There could be a lot of problems with other levels, but you don't expect it to be scientifically correct. That's the way a lot of people treat the Bible. They go to the Bible instead of asking what genre was this written in, what Hebrew genre, and is there anything that this could mean? They treat it very literally, woodenly, literally. And that's a problem. We need to ask, was this, is this some kind of a poetic a genre that they were trying to use? And, and how did they use that within Hebrew? And these are all things that we can learn and grow. But, but your relatives have asked a good question and they're trying to get away from the Bible saying that science has everything that we need, but all science does is continue to teach us. And there's so much we don't know. We don't know what we don't know, I like to say. We don't really know what causes and makes gravity. That's, that's something that we take for granted. We know it works, but we don't know what caused it. We don't really know exactly how the human body works. There are certain things that we don't know. We're still learning. That's the human body. And, and, and we have doctors poking and prodding and doing things all of the time. But how often do you go to the doctor? The doctor scratches his head and goes, I don't know. I don't know what this is. Our body is so complex. Our cells are so complex. Our DNA is so complex that science is still catching up with God's creation. 
and um, science and, uh, and the Bible do go hand in hand. And oftentimes, there have been scientists using the Bible that have found scientific truths. And there have been archaeologists using the Bible that have found archaeology. Archaeology, archaeologists used to say they would use in, in, in the Holy Land, well, I use the Bible in one hand and a spade in the other because they would find the discoveries where the Bible said that they were. So they're two completely different things. I don't want my doctor going to the Bible to figure out how to treat a kidney stone I have. And I don't want the one giving me advice going to science to try to give me advice. I want him going to the word of God that we can learn and grow from the truth of what God's word is. So science and the Bible are two completely different things and one of them is not going to outdate the other one, okay? So thank you very much, Jari, for your question and hopefully that's helpful uh, with your relative. We have a question from Annika. Annika says, 1 Peter 2, 18b, refer to the pre-tribulation rapture? Well, maybe. Let me go ahead and pull that up here. So first, first Peter 2, 18. We'll just go there. We want to read it in context as always. First Peter 2, 18, because context can often give us the help. Let me see where it's at here. Um, submission to masters. Okay. Am I right? First Peter 2, first Peter 2, 18. All right. Submission to masters. So let's, let me go ahead and put it on the screen here for you. And uh, then we'll go ahead and read it together. Hey, look, I've got my uh, I got my my collar popped like Elvis. So let me go ahead and fix that. I don't quite look as cool now as I used to, or some could say that I never look cool. But I feel better with my with my jacket like that. All right, so here we go. Um, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good, but to the gentle, but also to the harsh. Now, although this has a lot to say, maybe I'm not in the right place, Annika. Um, let me go back and look here again. 1 Peter 2, 18. 1 Peter 2, 18. I'm going to go to 2 Peter 2, 18 and see if that's what you're, you're talking about. Um, For when they speak great and swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. All right, so I think that's the right passage. So I'm gonna act as if it is, okay? So this would be, uh, this is, is a second, yeah, second Peter. Having a little bit of trouble with my contact, my reading contact. So, um, all right, yeah, this is second Peter 2.18. Uh, let me go ahead and to go back here a little bit. Deception of false teachers is the topic, all right? Let's go ahead and read this together and see if we can figure this out. Uh, talking about, let me just go back a verse or two. I'm going to go to verse 16, um, just because I like to get a lot of context. It says, um, but he was rebuked for his iniquity, a dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice, restraining madness of a prophet. So that's Balaam. Uh, These are wells without water, clouds carried by the tempest, for whom is reserved blackness of darkness forever. So he's talking about false teachers and false prophets, that they are 
clouds without water, wells without water, clouds carried by, by the tempest. They're, they don't have any uh, blackness and darkness forever. They don't have anything to offer us. A false teacher who teaches you, for example, it's a false teaching to teach you that God wants you rich. God wants me rich. I'm God's kid. Uh, I, I own all the cattle. God owns all the cattle and all the hills. And so they're all mine. So I'm rich. The Bible says if anybody teaches you godliness as a means of gain, withdraw yourself from them. They are wells without water, clouds carried by a tempest, for whom is reserved blackness and darkness forever. They're false teachers. They don't have anything for you. And that's why when you hear that someone is a false teacher, even if you've been spoken to by them. See, God God used a donkey to speak to Balaam. God can use anybody to speak to us, but that doesn't mean that they're true teachers or that they are out to rightly divide the word of God or find out what the word of God is. So then it goes on to say, for when they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who actually escaped from, uh, from those who live in error. So is the second half of that, Annika, Annika is asking, is the second half of that uh, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error, speaking of the rapture of the church? Uh, there's no reason that we would think that it is. One thing that we want to do when we're studying the Bible is not to, we don't want to intrude on the text. We don't want to do violence to the text, a hermeneutical principle that if I add something that's not there, then I'm doing violence to the text. I just want to know what's there and expound on what's there. And there's always enough there that we don't need to add to it. So um, the ones who actually escaped from those who live in error. Now, could when the rapture happens, are they going to escape from those who live in error? Yes. Is this referring to it? Probably not. It's just talking about those who escaped. Like Second Timothy tells us, the servant of the Lord must not quarrel, but be gentle to, to all, able to teach, correcting those who are in opposition, if God will grant them that. And so we want to correct them, and uh, we want to escape the errors of false teachers. And if you are listening to false teachers that you know that people have come out and said these things they are teaching are wrong. I find that when I, I, I bring up someone like a Kenneth Copeland or, um, and I'm not having the names of people, certain people escape me, but when I bring up names um, like Kenneth Copeland or what's the gal that, that speaks all the time and people like her so much, and, and when we say that she teaches you know, part of the, the prosperity movement, then they get mad. And I'll think of her name before this is done. And then they get mad at me. But, but don't be mad at me. Is your faithfulness with these false teachers or is your faithfulness with God? Is your loyalty uh, to God? And I think that is such an important thing for us. And so we want to make sure that we escape uh, these ones who teach such things. All right. Thank you, Annika, for your question. I really appreciate that. Uh, we have another question from Empress Kimberly. And Empress Kimberly says, we missed you uh, big time. Missed you too. And I can really say that, so glad to be back here. I was thinking as I was getting ready to come in and do the Q&A, how I've really missed this and I'm really glad to be back. It says, how we stopped, um, how we stopped you leaving again. Um, how was Israel? Ah, okay. Yeah, um, Israel was great. It is, it's fast paced. 
and there are certain ways in which we do it when we go that I don't necessarily like, I would like to start at the beginning of the ministry of Jesus, really see the area of the Galilee, then go down to the Dead Sea and look at En Gedi, which David hid from Saul, look at Masada, which has to do with 70 AD and not anything biblical, um, and see the Dead Sea for a day or two as a little break, then make your way back up to Jerusalem and then go all the way to the crucifixion. The, the way of the cross, what we would call the Via Dolorosa, the way, uh, the way of the cross, and then to um, Calvary where Jesus gave his life for us, and then go to Caesarea Maritime, which is Caesarea by the sea, which we start at most of the time, but we could go there at the very end of it because that's where Paul is sent off to Rome. He's kept in prison. He talks to King Agrippa. He talks to Felix. He talks to Festus. So Israel was really good. I love the people that we went with. It's always good uh, to get, you know, spend a couple of weeks with people, be on, be on a bus with them, interact with them, uh, solve some problems and difficulties together. Uh, that's always really good to do. You get to know people in a real powerful way. It helps me to understand the importance of koinonia, of fellowship, something, by the way, that I believe that we have here. And one of the things I would love to do, Kimberly, as you're talking about Israel, is I would love, and I don't know how many of you guys are in Tucson or would be close enough that you can get to Tucson, but I would love for us to have a live Q&A some Saturday um, where you guys can come down to the church. Um, we sit down and have some kind of a meal or we do the Q&A and then we have a church service or just do something, you know, and maybe some kind of a meal together where we can look one another in the eye and get to know one another a little bit better because we're building fellowship here. And um, I'm, I'm, I really want to do something like that. So um, remind me of that and we'll get something like that together. Thank you for your question, Kimberly. Uh, so we have a question from Psych Man. Um, yo from, where are you at? Morocco? Is that where you're at, Paul? You are everywhere. Um, I asked before, what was so great about David, given the severity of his sin, that he would be honored as a man after God's own heart? Would you agree it was his profound love for God? What was it about David? Um, what was it about David? Yeah, he was a man after God's own heart. David was a man like all of us, and um, someone defined the Bible like this. The Bible promises the Messiah who will be perfect, who will restore all things. And then there's all kinds of people who come along the way who look like they could be the Messiah. You have Abraham, and he makes mistakes. We can't be the Messiah. Then you have Moses, but he makes mistakes. He can't be the Messiah. You have Samuel, but he makes mistakes, and he can't be the Messiah. And you have David, and he makes mistakes, and he can't. Um, and he can't be the Messiah. And so, just checking to see if my uh, my phone stuff here, my computer has gone up on with you guys here. Um, but anyway, so and, and it continues on. So David is used by God in great ways, and David has some incredible faith. And David is unwilling to touch God's anointed, kill God's anointed, which is being touch God's anointed, with um, even though he's trying to kill him. But David blows it, and he blows it in the area of lust. And who has not lusted? Who has not struggled with sin? Who has not murdered in their hearts? Who has not slandered? All of us have severe sins. I like to say, Jesus didn't die for me on my best day, but he died for me on my worst day. And that's all of us. 
So what was it that made David a man after God's own heart? I think he was a shepherd. And I think he cared for the people like a shepherd. I think he violated that greatly because Bathsheba was one of those sheep and Uriah was one of those sheep. But I think that that was David's heart. And I think that he did have a profound love for him. That's revealed in the Psalms. David was also a prophet, which is also interesting, right? Um, and he's spoken of in the New Testament, the prophet said, and then they quote a Psalm of David. Uh, so I think those are the things that make David's love profound, but it was by no means perfection. And when people try to put it into perfection and they say, well, he actually killed somebody and it's true, but he was also put in a position of being king that he should have never been put into. God didn't want them to have kings. God had said that they shouldn't have kings, but they demanded that they would. All right, so um, let's see. We have a question from Barbara. Let me go ahead and bring this in, Barbara. Uh, so we have a question from Barbara. It says, Pastor, I was recently at a church where there was someone who was dressed in a skirt, woman's blouse, high heels, makeup, but was obviously not female, but male. All right? So there's a question in there somewhere. Um... Let me just kind of let me just kind of and riff here about your question a little bit, Barbara. Um, I don't know the exact number by which those who see themselves as transgender have jumped in the last few years, but it's an incredibly large number. And I heard uh, Jordan Peterson talking with a woman about transgender, and that is mostly. A, this, this jump has happened in white families that are mostly liberal. Now, that doesn't mean that conservative families don't have someone who could become transgender or that they might not be of not only, not only white, but the large amount of numbers have jumped in those that have that philosophy. So how should we respond to someone that comes to church this way? We should love them open the doors to them. They still need to repent, which is to stop not following God and follow God. And once they begin to follow God, if they make a real true commitment to God, which when the Bible says, when Jesus started preaching, Jesus said, repent and believe the gospel. You can repent from anything. I could paint, I could, I could go out and pick a, a color to paint my house. I'm colorblind. Let's just say that I go out and I look at a color. And I think that's a great color. I like that. So I bring it home and I tell my wife, I want to paint the house this color. And she looks at it and she goes, uh, maybe you shouldn't because that is one hideous color. And I go, I like it. I'm going to go ahead and paint it that color. And she says, no, let me help you paint a color because you're colorblind. And so I repent from painting the house a hideous color. That's what the word repent is. The word repent doesn't have what you repent from inside of it. You repent. You go the other direction. The next time you're walking down the street and you see someone holding up a sign that says, repent, then just turn around and walk away from them because that's what they're telling you to do. Turn around and go the other direction. Change your mind. And so they will repent, but the first thing they need to repent from is not being transgender or whatever other struggles they might have, but they need to repent from not believing and following Jesus. Repent. 
Stop living for yourself. Start believing the lies. Stop believing the lies and believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I would say that they visit churches. They go into church. That's good. It's good for them to be there. It's good for him to hear the word of God. Maybe God would touch their hearts and there would be a true repentance. Now, if someone wants to become a, an active member in the church, then we've got a whole nother question and a whole nother issue. But as far as someone attending church, I would want them to be there. Uh, a while back, we had several homosexual couples, both male and female, who began to attend our church services. And they were, were PDAs, right? They, they had, you know, they, they were showing, they were rubbing each other's necks and holding hands. And I'm persuaded that they were trying to get us at the church at the church to challenge them and to tell them this is wrong and you're in sin you guys need to cut that out but when people came to me and said i'm being driven crazy this this this, these two women that are sitting in front of me one of them is playing with the back of the other one's hair the whole service and i don't know what to do and i said pray for them because they, they haven't come forward to be a part of our church they haven't applied for anything they're just attending and they're hearing, and I, and during the time that they were there, I addressed that your identity should not be in what your, your temptations are. If you are same-sex attracted, that shouldn't make you gay. You shouldn't identify, be identified by that. Who identifies by their desires? I have that desire, so this is who I am. And tell people that's who I am. And I did that while they were there. I covered passages about homosexuality, why they were there but we never didn't show them the love of Christ as far as I know. And they ended up stopped coming. It was like, I think they probably went somewhere else where they could push buttons because that's what I think that they were trying to do. And Barbara, that's the same thing that I would say towards this person. There is true gender dysphoria, people that truly have it. They, they feel better as a woman than they do as a man. Doesn't make it right. I'm talking about from the, the psychological or, or from psychiatrists who will say there, this is a re, something that's been true and real. It's a very low percentage that has skyrocketed as it has become something um, that is, is a way of, of making a political statement, which becomes problematic in itself. Um, but how are we going to know? whether this person is confused or whether they're just trying to make a statement. I think that just the fact that they're doing it shows us a bunch of confusion and our hearts should go out to them. There should be a lot of love that's involved in it. And I'm not saying it's easy, but that's kind of my thoughts on uh, your statement there, Barbara. All right. So thank you for sharing that. So we have a, a question from Jari, part two. Jari says, question, uh, follow-up part two. Could it be the same people in the Bible believe the earth was flat and we couldn't go into outer space. Uh, we weren't ready for that information. So let me just try to um, get you know, go through this. Um, the Bible taught that the earth was a globe. Does that mean there wasn't anybody who thought that the earth was flat? No, not necessarily. All right. Um, the Bible, let's see here, Jari. Um, yeah, I don't know if they ever thought we could go out into space. I don't, I, I don't know. I don't know at what point somebody thought, you know what? I think we could visit the moon. I don't know. 
Um, but yeah, I can say that we weren't ready for it. The Bible does say knowledge is going to increase in the book of Daniel. It says that men will go to and fro on the earth and knowledge will increase. And we're seeing knowledge increase at just this incredible rate today. Now that computers are involved, knowledge is increasing uh, even more. Um, so let me read this here. Oh, my question that God's concerned for the matter. Um, yeah, and, and um, I mean, um, let's go ahead and go down. Jari, I may come back to you the third part of your question here, um, but I want to go down and um, uh, grab a couple other questions, all right? Uh, so Barbara, we have a question from Barbara. Barbara says, um, I was at church where a person was wearing, ah, here you go, a skirt and high heels, blouse, makeup, and obviously was um, not a female, was told their doors were open to everyone. How would Calvary handle that? Yeah, so I think I went ahead and explained how we would handle that. Um, we would reach out and love them. We want them there. We want them to hear the gospel. We want them to repent, which means to stop living for themselves and whatever it is they're living for and begin to live for Christ. Then the fruits of repentance would be taking care of these kind of things. So um, I'm hoping everyone at Calvary would be incredibly loving towards that individual, that they would be so overwhelmed by the love that we have for them. Because how many people in the world are confused? So you, you, you see a gal shows up at church and she's not dressed modestly. And, and are we now not going to have her there to hear the gospel and to be touched? Because we're like, well, the Bible says to be modest and you're not being modest. Um, you know, and, and I, I could go on thinking about, you know, different ways in which we might, we might not show the love of Christ. But we're here as to present the gospel of Jesus Christ, to see people saved, to see the church um, brought to maturity. So that's how we would handle it. We would not close the doors to them. I hope the people at the church would show love to them. Um, and obviously there could be other things that would make us move in other directions. Uh, but just being there at church, we would, we would be fine with them being there. Now, if they wanted to go and if they came and they applied to be um, an usher, to greet people at the door, then we would sit down and begin to talk to them more about what's going on in their life. We, will, we would look for that opportunity anyway to be able to really love them, show Christ to them, talk to them about the confusion that they have because they're obviously confused people. All right, so thank you very much. So we have a question from uh, Leigh Neal. Right? I'm sorry if I butchered your name there. Question, what was the actual date Jesus was born and recorded in the Bible? So we don't have the actual date that Jesus was born for us recorded in the Bible. We have, well, kind of we do. Um, we have in the book of Luke, and let me go ahead and go there. And it's Luke chapter 2, I think. Let me see if it is. And it came to pass in those days. Okay, yeah. So let me just put this up on the screen here. So it came to pass in those days that a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This census took uh, place first while Quinarius was governor of Syria. So all went to be registered, everyone to his own city. Now, this is an interesting statement. There are people who say this never happened, that they never sent people back to their hometown. But it did happen. It happened when, when, King Herod 
died and his son took over for him. They would send people back because now they were going to tax people more. Uh, they took away the title king from him. Uh, they, they taxed people more. And I believe the date for this would be 4 BC. That's what I believe the day would be. Um, I haven't looked at it in a long time, so don't hold me to that, all right? Um, I would have to go back and I would have to do some research. I'm just working off of my, my memory here. Now, Josephus uses a different date for Quirinius being governor of Syria. And so, some have said that the Bible's obviously wrong because Josephus was right. However, Josephus was not always really accurate when it came to information outside of his lifetime. And he was born a, a long time before this. So, he's relying on other people and is not always, he's very accurate when it comes to the things in his lifetime. But when it comes to things before it, it's not that accurate. Luke is a very good historian. And when you put Luke next to Josephus, I think Luke wins. And that's what you've really got. When people say, well, this never happened. Quirinius wasn't governor. Could have been a second time he was governor. Could have been that Josephus got it wrong and that Luke got it right. But this helps to give us around the time when Jesus would have been born. So, um, hopefully that helped you with that. Um, I can do, I can do a little bit more. I, I can go back and look at this, kind of refresh myself on this and then use this question as a first question in a Q&A, just because it would really be good to have the details of this, to be able to really bring it about, because um, I don't remember all the details, but that will send you at least in the, in the right direction to be able to research uh, the time that Jesus uh, was born. Um, but I think most are gonna say 4 BC, um, that Herod, you know, Herod had to be alive to be able to persecute the babies. So Jesus had to be born sometime before that to kill the babies, the, the massacre of the innocents. So, um, we would have to take all of that into account when we look at the date that Jesus was born. All right? So, that sends you in the right direction to be able to find that out. And I will research it, and I, I won't use it for one the next one, but here in the next few weeks, I'll use it as a first question uh, so that I can take time to just research it, get all the details right, and then come back with proper details. Okay? So, um, we have a question from Rakaya. Rakaya says, welcome back, Pastor. Thank you. Good to be back. Um, and let me go this. Let me do this here. Let me go there, all right? And then let me bring you in, Rakaya. Rakaya says, welcome back, Pastor. Um, one uh, probing question is if a man appointed to die once, according to the Bible, why do people have accounts of dying and coming back only to die later or in old age? Okay, according to the Bible, why do people have accounts of dying and coming back? Yeah, I, um, I was with a friend yesterday that had a heart attack and died and was dead for, I don't know how many minutes. Um, his buddies that were with him did CPR and actually broke his ribs doing CPR. And the paramedics got there, continued on, and he's living, he's, he's, living in incredibly. Uh, this is years ago. He's living just at a high quality of, of health in his life. And he was dead. And I remember asking him, what did you see when you died? And he said, nothing. I saw blackness and that's all that I saw until I actually came to. Um, just my own little interest there. Um, so, God knows that people would die and be brought back. He knows that we would get to the point where 
we would die and then be able to revive people. God knew that Lazarus was going to die and then come back again. Um, and so uh, you're taking, I think that's taking things in a way it wasn't meant when it says it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. That, that if there's anybody that died twice, and we have several of them in the Bible, that they would be outside of that. The point that's being made there is you die and then you face judgment. So you've got to make things right with God on this side of life. It's not making the statement that there's never going to be anybody that's risen from the dead like, like um, uh, Lazarus and then would die again. Because Lazarus obviously died twice and there could be people who would go and say, well, Lazarus died twice and see the Bible says that it's appointed once for man to die so the Bible can't be right in either way. They're not really not being fair in their reading because the point that's being made there is that you die and then you face judgment. It's not making the point that you only die once or that there's not anyone who is ever an exception to that. It becomes too, uh, you're, you become too critical in the wrong ways. It, it, it's a way that you would never handle a, um, well, let's just say it's a way you would never handle a textbook. You would never take a textbook that's saying one thing and, and make that statement and then later on make, the, make a statement that looks like it would contradict it but not read it in its context for what was being said. You wouldn't handle it that way. And people handle the Bible in a way that they would not handle any other writing. And so I don't see any contradiction in that at all. And um, so uh, I just think God has brought people back to life and we live in a day when people die and can be brought back to life, praise God. And God would know what their appointment for death is because everybody has an appointment for death. And God would also know what the appointment for Lazarus was or the little girl that Jesus rose from the dead. He knew what their appointment would be. And maybe they had two appointments. I mean, and if, you're, if you die and you come back to life, maybe there's two appointments for you. Um, but it doesn't violate, it was, you know, it's appointed once for man to die and then comes judgment. Because the point being made is that judgment is going to follow death. That's the, the, the part that's being made there. All right, Rakaya, thank you very much for your question. Um, let's see. That reminds me of breath. Let's see. Um, I'm just reading a question here. All right, yeah, let me go and bring this in because I would like to address this. Um, no question, just a share. I have the four letters tattooed on the side of my index finger. It reminds me to breathe as I struggle with anxiety and panic at times. And it reminds me who is in control. You don't speak the name of God with no vowels, only consonants, Yahweh. You breathe it. So there are those who say that you're saying, you're like, it's like a breath, like, and I got I forget which one it is, like, yah, yah, or, Yahweh. So you're, you're breathing the name of God. Yahweh. Yahweh. And I, I'm no good at it. Uh, people that can do that. Um, I never thought about it like that before. I saw another pastor speak about it. The fact that saying Yahweh imitates breath. Um, now, I heard um, Dr. Brown, I'm trying to think of his first name, who's a Hebrew expert, talking about whether or not saying these four letters in Hebrew. Now, he's not, he doesn't just speak Hebrew. He's an expert in Hebrew. 
okay? And um, what is this? What is this first name? Um, you find him in. You find him um, a lot on. Uh, he does. He does. He does some Q and A's on YouTube. Um, ah, well, you can look him up for Hebrew. He's a Hebrew expert, and I'm, as I said, an expert. And he says that you would not ever say these these letters breathing. You would never breathe half of it in and the other half of it out. You'd say, you know, yeah. Uh, Yahe, or you would say out the the four letters, Yadhe, Wadhe. <clears throat> now, <clears throat> as far as you having them tattooed on your finger to remind you to breathe, what a what a great thing to have the letters on your hand for the God that gave breath to you to be able to breathe. It doesn't matter whether someone is right or wrong about a statement like when you say Yahweh, you're breathing. That right or wrong doesn't matter. What matters is it's the God that gave you breath. It's the God that can calm you down. It's the God that you can trust in. And I think that that is an absolutely awesome tattoo. And I'm so glad that you find when you need to be calmed down, that you can look at the tetragrammaton on your finger, that you can think about your God, the ever existent one who loves you, serves you and follows you. Um, but this idea that you breathe God's name, um, at least one expert, Dr. Michael Brown, Michael Brown, Dr. Michael Brown uh, says that that's not the way that you would say those Hebrew vowels. So you can look that up and see. And then you say, I was thinking of Joyce Myers. You are exactly correct. I was thinking of Joyce Myers. And I've, I've had this on several occasions. People have really been touched by her. She uses a lot of scripture, she quotes a lot of scripture. But then when you say, well, she also teaches that God wants you rich. She teaches that Jesus atoned for you in hell. Then people get mad at me because their, their loyalty seems to be with her rather than, and Paul brings up, brings up Joyce Myers too, rather than putting their trust in God. And it's like I said, your loyalty is to God, not to a, a pastor and not to a woman, all right? Not to, not to anyone who would teach anything. Your loyalty shouldn't be to me. If, I, if I'm telling you something and it's wrong, you, you go to what's right. And, and I'm certainly not one to say that I'm never wrong, but I also don't want to teach something that is deliberately a false gospel. And if you find out that I'm teaching something uh, that is a false gospel, then I would want you to have your loyalty be with God as well, especially if I'm, if I'm unwilling to correct it. If it's something obviously false that I just will not correct. Um, so um, I, Susan says, um, I was gone here. We had um, Ed Taylor, Gino Geraci, and... Um, uh, who was the um, astrophysicist that was here while I was gone. Even though I missed the teachings of our pastor, the guest speakers were amazing. I have so much admiration for Pastor Ed Taylor. Um, Gina Geraci was great. Uh, so was Jim. And she gives, um, I can't remember his name. Hope, um, hope I'm not missing someone. And then we had Adam, um, one of our pastors on staff that taught, and his teachings were great too, for two weeks. And then um, Jim um, Arnold taught for a week. And then I'll be back tonight, obviously. Uh, teaching. Okay. But thank you, Susan, for the encouragement there. I'm really glad that you guys were ministered to um, while I was not really taking a break because I did a lot of teaching in Israel, although it's pretty refreshing and powerful to be able to teach uh, where the very events took place. Re it really is. So, um, all right. So let's go ahead and see what other questions uh, that we have here. Um, but I do appreciate that you guys were blessed by them. That was our hope as um, I took some time off. 
We were able to get to Jerusalem early too, by the way. Me and my wife got there, I think three days before the group got there. So we were able just to spend some time off and um, kind of recuperating before we got into the mindset um, of the trip. So, all right, it's good to see your guys' interaction here. Um, so let me bring in Vivian here. Uh, Vivian says, what kind of judgment do we face as Christians with sins forgiven? Will God still bring up our sins at judgment? What does judgment look like for us? Yeah, Vivian, um, God puts our sins behind his back. He remembers them no more. They, my sin has been forgotten, which is an amazing thing. I will not face any judgment for any of my sins. The judgment I will face is for my motives. This is the Bema Seat judgment that Corinthians talks about, that all of what I do for Christ will be put to test by the fire. The wood, hay, and stubble will be burned away, and what remains will is genuine. And I hope that what I'm doing for him now is genuine. I know that, that I'll have wood, hay, and stubble. I think every one of us will, especially the person out there who thinks you're not going to have any. You probably got a lot. The person who goes, not me, I don't have any wood hand stuff. Well, everything that I do for God is genuine. Um, you're going to be surprised. We're all going to be surprised because all of us have fallen short of the glory of God. And God knows that we're all but dust. And, um, and that's really, really important. So you're not going to face judgment. The Bible says we've been saved from the wrath that is to come and we will not be judged. So um, you, well, our, our motives will be judged. So do what you do for Christ. Do what you do as honestly as you can. Uh, but know that there is now, therefore, no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And that is Romans 8.1. It's a, it's a great verse. It's a fantastic verse that really helps us. Um, I'm just going to continue to make my way through here and see what other questions um, we've got. I do really um, appreciate, I really do appreciate you guys and appreciate your questions. I know that Jari had a third question, so let me see if I can get back to that here. And uh, if you're new here, you're joining us for the first time, if you're joining us for the first time, really glad to have you guys here. Um, and if you have a question, you can write the word question out. We've got just a few more minutes. It's an hour uh, long Q&A. We've got just a few more minutes, um, but I bypassed one of Jari's uh, follow-up questions, so I want to get back here and do it. Okay, here we are, Jari. Let me bring this in. So Jari says, uh, part three of my question, is it for God to conceal a matter, but for the kings to search it out? Is this the reason why scripture doesn't tell us everything uh, we were to find out for ourselves, we were to evolve. Okay, so um, let me just think this uh, question through. You've got here, Jari, a little bit. Um, so God says it's to God to conceal a matter and for a king to search things out. So meaning if God conceals things, can we find things? There are certainly things that God does conceal that we can search out and we can find. But the Bible also has another passage that says that the hidden things belong to God and the revealed things belong to us. 
So here God's talking about two different things. He's talking about things that are hidden that we can never find out. And God's hidden them, and there are certain things we will not know. We're not going to be able to find out everything. We can't say it's a king to search out a matter so I can know everything that God's going has, has for me or that God is going through. We can't. Hidden things belong to God. The revealed things belong to us. But there are things that God does conceal that can be searched out. And again, this passage here would be talking about the job of a king. It's the job of the king to find out what's right and how to rule from a proper and a right place and not to be... Um, not to be seeking his own way, but to be seeking the things of God while he's ruling. So um, a good thought, Jari, and we certainly can seek those things out. God may conceal things, um, but we will see them uh, and we will see them as time goes on. All right, so this brings us to the end of our Q&A today. Uh, been really good seeing you guys again. Stay close to Jesus and, and love and serve him, follow after him, uh, seek the things that we find within his word, which are so powerful. I'm reminded of what Peter says in his sermon in the book of Acts, repent, that times of refreshment may come from the presence of God. Repent, remember, repent, stop, stop and believe the gospel, turn to God, start believing in him, and times of refreshing uh, will come back uh, to God. So thank you guys. It's good to be back. It's good to see you here. Uh, we have a service in about an hour. We're talking about the sixth seal out of chapter nine in the book of Revelation. Uh, so it's going to be good to be back and to be covering those things again. Tonight is also communion. So if you want to take communion with us, then get your, if you're going to be online, then get your elements ready and then go ahead and join us for communion. Uh, or you can go to our East or our West campus. East campus is six o'clock. West campus is 715. You can go to calvarytucson.com to find out those locations. All right, so God bless you guys. Stay close to Jesus. Love you. Glad to be back with you again. Lord willing, we'll be back together uh, with a new Q&A this coming up Saturday. All right, right before Easter, right? The day before uh, the day before Easter. And we might have a question about Easter, whether or not it's pagan. That might be a question that would be good for us to start with, but at least talk about it some. All right, so God bless you guys. I am out. Love you, and we will see you.